Hey everybody, um, Eric from Hit Subscribe here, and ooh, I'm going to get back in frame. There we go. Uh, today I'm going to talk about, sorry, I'm pouring a drink. I'm a little thirsty. Uh, I was running late. Uh, how do you avoid bad clients as a freelancer, which is um, probably a topic that's near and dear to the hearts of a lot of maybe new freelancers or intermediate freelancers rather than people who are just looking out on the horizon and thinking about freelancing. So let's dive into that one. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I suppose the easiest way not to have bad clients is not to have any clients, no bad clients, uh, no clients at all. Those things kind of go nicely together. But in all seriousness, um, I led off with that flippant piece of advice because I am going to offer something that's going to sound flippant but isn't. And it's kind of the philosophical underpinning of how not to have a bad client. Pardon me for one moment. I am quite thirsty. Uh, I suppose I could have done that before the, the recording, but I was running late. So um, the philosophical underpinning of how not to have bad clients is basically don't need clients. Now, this isn't the same thing as don't have clients. It's don't need the next client, so to speak. So any business that is service-based, which you as a freelancer will be, you are going to need clients. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a business. But you want to position yourself never to need any given client. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? Um, it starts in the conception phase of going off on your own. So here's like the easiest example of this I can think of, say that you're working nine to five, you've got a great job, everything is good, and you go out and you start to freelance um, for money as a moonlighter. I've talked about moonlighting before up there in the YouTube video, um, or for when I'm record, uh, putting this on YouTube, I'll have a link about that video. Um, but the idea is if you're moonlighting and just doing this for spending money that you don't need, then you never need a client. So. If uh, somebody that you're talking to rubs you the wrong way and you, you could just say, hey, I don't want to do business with you. Um, likewise, if you're in the middle of an engagement, you can just quit. Um, if you charge them, refund their money, or if you're billing in arrears, you just say, nope, you don't have to pay me, I'm done. That is kind of the epitome of not needing any given client. So if you have a nice stream of income in the form of a job or just like lots of other clients, that works. Another way you could avoid um, needing a given client is if you in the early going have built up a lot of runway so if you have six months worth of living expenses in the bank in that first month you don't need to take on a a, a client like you might feel some pressure to but you don't need to um having i mean this is kind of a i suppose a privileged situation to be in but if you have a sp spouse or a partner with a good steady job and your income isn't strictly necessary that's another arrangement now, I can't necessarily get into all of these for all of time or what have you, but hopefully you get the idea, which is you should try to conceive of a situation where you don't ever need any given piece of business from any prospect. And that's going to give you a lot more confidence in your business. Like you'll do better in sales if you never actually need the business. You won't come across as desperate while you have the business. Um, clients will be less likely to walk all over you. So it's a good thing in general. Uh, I could probably do a whole video about how to go about never needing business, but focus on that as your true north. So even if you don't understand exactly how you're going to not need a given piece of business at every turn, always bear in mind that you should be making decisions about the business you conduct 
in such a way that you should never need any given piece of business. Um, for instance, if you are well into freelancing and the way you're doing that is that you have one client that you work with for a year at a time, if that client went away, you wouldn't have any other business lined up and maybe you don't have any runway in the bank. That's not a great situation. So I'm not saying um, that you've done something wrong somehow if you're in that situation, but understand that that's risky. And then you want to be thinking of, even if you don't know the exact path to getting there, thinking of like, how do I de-risk this? How do I make it so that if this one client I have over the course of this year said goodbye to me, I would be okay. Or better yet, that I could just get tired of this and say goodbye to them. And I guess um, the assumption that you could get another gig would be one way, but like to have runway or to have multiple prospects lined up or to reduce the size and scope of your engagements so that you have three, four, five, ten 10 clients at a time. All of those are valid options. But anyway, my point is, when you're approaching your business as a freelancer, you should be look. You should look to get to and be in a position all the time where you don't actually need any given client or any given prospect. So that is the philosophically the easiest way, not only to avoid bad clients but to avoid risk in general. So um, getting more practical, I think what I'll do is talk about um, avoiding bad clients in the different stages of business acquisition. So. <clears throat> I've talked about this a little bit before too, but when you have um, like a business acquisition pipeline, if you will, there's marketing and then there's prospecting and then there's sales. And that's kind of a funnel that steers things towards being your customer. And then between sales and actual customer onboarding, there is negotiation um, depending on how you structure things. So let me talk through those stages. Marketing is where people first kind of become aware of you and get in touch with you. And the way you can avoid bad clients with marketing is to be very clear and specific about what you do, <clears throat> and in some cases, maybe even about what you don't do. So here's what I mean. Um, let me give, I guess, kind of a broadly relatable example here. If, let's say, um, you decide to go into business fixing people's furnaces, um, you could put up a website and you could advertise your services to people saying, I fix furnaces, that's what I do. Or um, you could do what a lot of like software developers and people that are um, generalists in a field tend to do, is you get worried when you put up your website that you're going to turn people off when maybe there could have been business. So you put up really generic um, positioning statements full of platitudes. You might say something like, well, I don't want to turn anybody off. So I'm going to say that I provide digital solutions to companies that are looking for innovative, creative approaches. That sounds buzzwordy. It's something that you might, um, you know, see on a resume. Uh, by the way, as an aside, I, I would not um, approach freelancing the way that you approach searching for jobs. But anyway, um, you might see that uh, in somebody's positioning on their website. It's all kind of very generic. And they're thinking, this is the thinking of like the newbie business owner or freelancer is, you don't want to put anything up there that causes a potential prospect to say, oh, this isn't for me. <clears throat> so back in the analogy of fixing furnaces, um, you might say like, well, what if somebody gives me a call about fixing um, a plumbing leak in their in their kitchen? Uh, I don't have a lot of business, and even though that's not really what I want to do, I'd be willing to do that. So maybe this person, instead of saying I fix furnaces, they put up something that says, like, I help people solve problems in their home. But what they really want to do is fix furnaces. Now, here's the problem that starts to come up. 
somebody gives them a call and says, hey, I see that you solve problems in, in the home. My wife and I are having some troubles and we're hoping that you could come over and solve this domestic problem that we have so that we don't have to get a divorce. Now, if you do that, you, the furnace fixer, are going to find yourself in this weird position of couples counseling. It's probably not you living your best life or what you signed up for. You're probably not good at it. The couple probably won't like it. So this sort of tension, this ill fit, is something that is a main source of bad clients. So just, you know, philosophically to bear in mind, there is a world where your bad client is a bad client because you're a bad service provider and you're just not a fit for each other. So having generic marketing or no marketing um, that positions you for um, how people qualify when they're researching you or finding you, that can lead to bad clients, bad fits. So I would advise you if what you want to do is fix furnaces to be very clear about that. I fix furnaces. I don't install new furnaces. I don't sell furnaces. I don't fix air conditioners. I don't fix your marriage. I fix furnaces. And if you do that, it's going to be less likely that people call you up with a misunderstanding of what you do. So being clear and specific in your marketing message is important because it lets people disqualify. If they're not a good fit for you and you've been very clear about what you do and don't do, the person seeking marriage counseling isn't going to land on your site and think like, hey, this person fixes furnaces. That's probably someone I should hire as a marriage counselor. So that person will never call and never have the opportunity to go through your sales process and become a bad client. Um, so let's now, I guess, talk a little bit about um, the sales process. So somebody's landed on your website. This is your marketing apparatus. They have decided that it's worth giving you a call. Um, so the next thing that comes up there is that you get on a sales call with them. Now, up until this point, um, their investigation of you may have been passive. They found your website somehow, Google search, or somebody recommended you, or whatever. Um, so they're kind of kicking the tire, seeing what you're all about. When they fill out a form, they reach out to you. Um, let's talk here in terms of marketing and sales terms for just a moment. There is what is known as a lead. That's somebody who is interested, potentially, in, in doing business with you. Then there's what's known as a qualified lead. A qualified lead is when you become aware of a, a lead, they contact you through your website, and then you do a little recon and you investigate them. So you can see from their email address, they're from such and such company, and they've filled out a blurb and maybe your contact form on the website saying, I wanna hire you to uh, not exactly fix my furnace, but maybe to like take a look at my furnace, but also while you're there, cut the grass or whatever. Now, what you can do is look at that message, read up on this person a little bit, and then say, do I want this business or not? If you don't want that business, you disqualify that lead. You say, nope. Um, so you write them back and say, hey, you know, I really wish I could help, but if you're looking for lawn mowing, you know, give my friend Steve a call, he cuts grass. You could also qualify that lead if, for instance, they had said, I have this furnace that's 20 years old, and I'm not sure if I need a new one or not, maybe you can fix it you're gonna qualify that as a lead, that's a good fit. There is also what is known as lead scoring. Um, and this is a way that you can, so qualifying a lead or disqualifying a lead is binary. It's a yes or no decision, either they're qualified or not. Lead scoring is a way that you can kind of take your gut out of it a little bit and create almost an algorithm for deciding whether this is a good fit or not. And you do that by like 
the easiest way is to kind of have a series of questions that you ask, kind of like a BuzzFeed quiz, and you give them like one point for each question that is answered in the right way. So for instance, um, in our model of the world with the furnace repairman, um, you might say, uh, are they asking about a furnace? You give them five points. Uh, are they asking about some other appliance? You give them negative five points. Uh, in their form fill, do they seem like a nice person? Give them a point. Are they rude and abrupt or incoherent? Take away a point. So you, you conceive of a way like that to qualify people um, either before or during your sales call with them. So you give them that score, and then if you're just qualifying or disqualifying, yay or nay, um, otherwise uh, the, uh, the scoring can kind of take some of the emotions out of it, and you just fill it out, and you say, nope, nope, doesn't make the cut. I'm not going to do business with this person. Or, yes, I think this is a qualified lead. So why am I mentioning all of this? Well, um, because apart from just putting up clear positioning and making it clear what you're doing, that's designed to get people to self-select and say, well, self-disqualify, like I'm, this isn't a fit. This is a way for you to disqualify people even when they aren't a fit but, but want to be or think they are. And you'd be surprised how much that comes up. So especially if you have like soggy or generic positioning, you become a Rorschach test and the client who has something to do and hopes that you are just the resource to fill in there um, is going to map whatever they think they want you doing onto whatever you actually do. Meaning, even if you say, hey, I just repair furnaces, they'll probably say to themselves, like, yeah, I mean, he says that, but probably install a new one, probably cut the grass. Like, um, Clients will assume that they're going to get the outcome that they want out of you. And frankly, if you've never done sales calls before, or maybe if you're inexperienced with it, there's a curious thing that happens, which is that both parties want it to work. So both of you, even when there probably isn't a mutual fit, want there to be. And so you'll selectively hear things that the other person is saying. So my advice for avoiding bad clients is to pull back from that kind of cognitive bias and tendency and dispassionately score and then also um, act based on those scores. So if, if the prospect scores badly from how they fill out the form to how the sales call goes and all that, go with that. Um, you know, don't, don't just go along hoping because if somebody scores badly on a set of criteria that you laid out when you were feeling no particular emotions, that's not a good sign. And, and well, it's a good sign that they're going to be a bad client. One other thing I will say that seems like a complete and utter, um, I guess, backing away from that, but like, bear with me here is go with your gut but if your gut tells you not to work with that person. So if there is a situation where you score them as a lead and everything looks great and you really think that, um, hey, maybe this could potentially work, but you just have a terrible feeling about it, I honestly would recommend go with the feeling rather than the score. Don't do that in the opposite direction. Don't say, I really have a good feeling about this one, but they scored terribly. So I would say err on the side of disqualifying, and that circles back to my philosophical take, which is never need a piece of business. So err on the side of disqualifying business, and you will err on the side of not having bad clients. And um, I guess the final thing I say, I'll say about that is when you're conceiving of this scoring system, it's pretty easy if you've had some clients to go back and do retrospectives and say, okay, this was a bad client. What made them a bad client? And what could I ask or how could I evaluate that up front? What red flags did this give off? Likewise, take your best clients 
these are your ideal clients, you know, find a client where you're like, if every one of my clients were this client, I would be over the moon and life would be great. Likewise, what were good signs about that client? Like what were the green flags? Um, what do you like about them? What would you look for? And um, make sure that you're optimizing for those good clients and scoring out of the mix, those bad clients. And um, keep doing that. Like th this isn't an exercise you do once and it stays for all of time. Um, even to this day, after being in business for myself, gosh, like seven years now, um, I still learn things. Uh, customers, clients, whatever, still surprise me in ways both good and bad. And then we kind of go back and say, hey, that was a learning experience. It turned out this particular style of client wasn't a fit because of X and who knew. Um, so keep revisiting that, keep tuning it, and keep your eyes on that ideal client and how to filter out the ones that, that don't work very well. The last thing I will say about avoiding bad clients, at least in the first place, is um, kind of, okay, so we've gone through marketing, we've gone through sales, everything seems good so far, now we're in the kind of like onboarding contract negotiation phase, whatever your onboarding looks like. Um, if a client starts to negotiate with you about price, and specifically if they tell you that you're at the real top end of their price range, they can only afford $1,000 for furnace repair, and you've concluded that they need $1,500 in furnace repair, and furthermore, that $1,500 is kind of the minimum that you're going to come out and do anything for, otherwise it's not worth it to you. That is one of the most surefire ways to have a mutually terrible experience. So my last piece of advice for avoiding clients is do not negotiate at the bottom of your price range. Do not do it. And furthermore, don't be at the upper end of a client's price range. If you feel good because they said, ah, I'm only willing to go as high as a thousand, and then you play hardball and they finally agree to pay fifteen hundred, also going to be miserable. And here's why: if you are at the upper end of their price range, what they are telling you is they don't think your service is as valuable as the money that they're paying. They think you're overcharging them. And if they are at the bottom end of your price range, you barely think that they're worth your time. Does that sound like a recipe for people enjoying working together? They're going to think that you're shanking them, that you ought to be bending over backwards and giving them the moon, doing way more stuff for them because they're overpaying. You should be lucky to have them as a customer. Meanwhile, you're going to resent them because you have all these other higher ticket customers. And why am I even paying attention to this lowball, penny ante, two-bit customer? That's going to be your attitude towards each other. So do not do that. It is a recipe for misery. If you take nothing else away from this video, do not negotiate at the bottom of your price range. I have done it. I haven't done it in years because it's just not worth doing. But um, I have done it in the past, and it's never been a good engagement. Somebody is always deeply unhappy. Either they need it so much, they just pay through the nose, and they don't like it. And if you were on some platform, they give you a bad review because they're not getting their money's worth. Or you give and you go down to the bottom of your price range and now you have a demanding picky client that you don't even think is worth having. Um, so just don't do that. You can also um, read during the negotiation and onboarding a lot um, about the dynamic you're going to have with a client based on how pushy or how much they want to circumvent your process. So um, another bit of kind of trailing advice that I'll give to that big one about not negotiating is if the client demands a lot of stuff during onboarding, if you say that you want to meet in the afternoon and they say, oh, I really only want to do the morning, 
if you say that I don't get in slacks that my clients have and they insist that you join their slack, that tends to be a sign, this is a more subtle thing, but that tends to be a sign that they're trying to establish a power dynamic where they're going to order you around. If you don't like that kind of thing and if you don't like the idea of being a pseudo-employee, think hard about that because they are playing a power game there. And that, if you're like me and you don't have a lot of tolerance for that, um, that's going to wear on you really quickly. So if you think during the honeymoon phase, the onboarding, oh, well, uh, you know, I'll just make them happy now and then, and then I'll reestablish the, the dynamics later or I'll push back or I'll set boundaries later. No, you won't. If they're playing those games up front, it's to establish their position as being in charge of vendors. So be sensitive to that. The way that clients behave during onboarding, especially if they're insisting on sort of like little petty things, it's another red flag that you're probably not going to have the best client experience or the best vendor experience, I guess, with that client. So that's another one. Beware of the negotiating in general. If they're picking a lot of little battles with you, that's not a great sign. Definitely the price one is the biggest one if you take nothing else away. But so rolling it all the way back up, all of that can be avoided by never needing that one client. So your good marketing is going to help them self-select out and not bother you if they're not a good fit in the first place. A good sales process, a good scoring process is going to help you dispassionately disqualify business. And being aware of the dynamics during negotiation is also going to help you disqualify business. But all of that is moot if the only way that you're going to pay your rent this month is if you take this client's business. So the most important thing to bring it all the way back is to structure your practice or your business in such a way that you never need any one given client or prospect, that there's always another one up, there's always a waiting list, you've got enough runway in the bank that you can pass on it, whatever it is, never need that piece of business. Um, so kind of off the cuff there, that is my best uh, attempt at structuring a guide through how to avoid, avoid bad clients. Um, because maybe uh, if there's interest, I'll, I can do a video in like what to, about what to do when you find yourself in the middle of an engagement with a bad client. That might be interesting. But um, I think that's about all the advice I've got on avoiding bad ones. So hope that helps, and I will catch you next time.